Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Diane Elliott. She is the Peter B. Ritzma Professor of the Humanities, teaching in the Department of History at Northwestern University. She's also a medieval historian whose interests converge around questions of spirituality, sexuality, and gender. Diane, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you. It's good to be here. So today is a special case because you're here to speak about two people, Elzir and Delphine. But before we get into them, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you. How did you first become interested in mysticism as a field of study? Well, um, there's really two answers to that, the personal and the professional. Great. Let's hear both. I'll start with personal. My mother has mystical tendencies and had one of these strange religious conversion experiences that um, you read about and sort of turned my childhood and her household upside down. But I didn't set out to study my mother. I mean, in a sense, I'd been studying her all my life and still am. What happened was when I went to graduate school, I naturally gravitated towards medieval studies because of my interest in the church. And I was trying to think of how I could study women. And, you know, this was in the 80s. Sources are always slim for women. I was at University of Toronto, and Father Raptus was there, a big peasant study thing, and that really wasn't my thing. And then a friend said to me, well, what about all of these female mystics? Uh, the Corpus Christianorum edition of Hildegard Skewias had just come out, and the Paulist Press had started producing these things like the Padaway, etc., etc. And so I thought, okay, I'd love to do that. But, you know, I was still doing coursework. How do I get a course on that? And then somebody said to me, there's this wonderful scholar, Sister Frances Nims, best known for translation and edition she'd done of Geoffrey of Vansel. So I called her up on the phone out of the clear blue, and I said, Sister Frances, you don't know me, but I'm trying to put together a reading course on medieval mystics. I need someone to direct it. And I know this is out of the blue, but how would you feel about doing this? And there was this long pause. And she says, dear, I would just love to. And so I learned my Latin by struggling through things like Skivias, et cetera, et cetera. So looking at female religious writers got me into mysticism and interest in that developed into my dissertation topic. So what you're working on right now is not directly related to mysticism, but could you tell us a little bit about your current project? Well, it has mystical aspects. I'm working on a book on the church's manipulation of bodies for purposes of canonization is the best known, but my particular interests are what I call the negative translations, where they dig people up to punish them. Well, that's just charming. (laughs) And um, because there is an ongoing body-soul relationship in Christianity, There are some sort of mystical aspects of it. I mean, we all know instances where people will have a vision of somebody who's saying, will you please bury me, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of an antique leftover. But I think that these kinds of ideas that this connection between the body and soul is kind of ongoing was still alive enough in the church that they thought that digging up someone like a heretic and burning their body would have big spiritual ramifications. So I've been looking at um, digging up bodies and, you know, it's not an upbeat kind of practice, but it's something that I'm very interested in. I mean, it might not be upbeat, but it's certainly fascinating. I mean, you look at cases where we have people accused of heresy or witchcraft who are sentenced and hung, and then 
their bodies are burned after they're dead, partially to purify the community of their sin, but also to make sure that they are very, very dead. Yes, and I think that the very fact that the church was so careful to make sure that things were very, very, very dead is significant. Of course, it is also part of the phenomenon that people call damnatio memoriae, the damnation of memory. It's something that's used especially with antique texts, where basically when you were trying to get rid of someone's memory in antique times, um, the Senate would pass a sentence and they'd start chiseling off their names from every inscription, decapitating their statues. So this is in a way a continuation of the same kind of mindset. Nothing says you completely messed up, like having your name chiseled off of things and being effectively erased from everyone's memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the church was very thorough. I mean, that's why it's still around. I mean, the very fact that when we're talking about heretical thought, we have to piece it together because the church burned all their books. And so we have their word to take for it. And it's like that with the bodies. Heretics are very, very dead. I mean, who are really, they're very dead people. While saints are not so dead. I mean, they're, you know, honorifically treated. The thing is, though, this is not about mysticism, but the translation of saints and nasty treatments towards heretics started to evolve and kind of lockstep. So they're, they're two very related processes, I think. And obviously the line between sanctity and heresy is quite a blurry one at times. Well, you know, that's, um, that was the impetus for, um, I wrote a book called Proving Woman that really was arguing that sanctity and heresy were artificial poles. Poles where, I mean, look at someone like Joan of Arc, okay? She's like the most fluid example. And of course, mysticism is an area in which people are going to get in trouble, right? I mean, they've developed a vertical relationship with God. The church really prefers horizontal relationships that they can control. So uh, mysticism is a surefire way to maybe find yourself someday be burned at the stake if that's what you want. <laughs> I mean, it might be a bit crude, but I'm sure avid listeners will be well aware that there are some mystics who also would have preferred a horizontal relationship with God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of those, right? <laughs> bridal mysticism really went kind of wild in the 13th century, you know, mystical pregnancies and what have you. But Alzear and Dauphine are completely the opposite of this. You're right. We've gotten very far off track. Let's move back to Alzear and Delphine. How did you first come across them? So I was working on a dissertation that um, was eventually called Spiritual Marriage and ended up being my first book. And it was about sexual abstinence in medieval wedlock. And when I tell people that, they say, well, that sounds like every marriage I've ever heard of. But ha, 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 ha. <laughs> what I mean is, you know, where it's actually spiritually recognized. I think probably the most well-known case of somebody who really worked very hard for it was Marjorie Kemp. But there were the lucky few, hagiographically inspired, who managed to talk their spouses to chastity on their marriage bed, right? Best known example of this was St. Cecilia, who talked her husband Valerian, <laughs> sort of coerced him, saying, honey, there's this angel that hovers over us, and if you touch me, he will cut off your head. And Valerian said, well, why can't I see this angel? Well, you'll see him when you're baptized. And sure enough, he did. But the way, actually, that I got to these stories I think it was maybe, it was in the back of my mind even when I was an undergraduate, I was reading Gregory of Tours' History of the Franks, and he tells this story about two people who had the nickname the two lovers, Injuriosus and Scholastica. They were both of noble birth, 
and on their wedding night, they had never really been together before, which is why this so often happens on wedding night with higher class people in arranged marriages. I mean, there's some reality there. She was weeping, and this is what's the matter. I vowed my virginity to God, and he says, well, we, we come from these noble houses, and of course, their whole purpose is to reproduce, right? And she said, yeah, but, you know, I, I just can't. And then she talked him into it, into not, I guess, rather than it. She talked him into not it. The marriage remained unconsummated. And on Scholastica's deathbed, he said, Lord, I entrust her to you as pure as she was when I received her from you. And she opens her eyes and smiles. And she said, why did you have to say that? Nobody asked you. It would have been their secret all their life. And I found that story so charming and so intimate. And then it also reminded me of Virginia and Leonard Wolf's marriage, which, even though she ended up committing suicide, seemed very harmonious. And from all accounts, it was an unconsummated marriage. And that's what put the idea of writing a dissertation on spiritual marriage into my head. And one of the things that I learned, this brings it back to mysticism, is that chastity was very often a precondition for the mystical state. And, well, I think that actually the mystical vocation was sometimes brought out by the fact that they were living these kinds of double lives, right? Appearing in a certain way, certain expectations on them, and then lifting and separating to be with God. Um, but anyways, a lot of very notable mystics in the Middle Ages talked their husbands into vows of chastity. Marjorie Kemp is certainly the best known, but there are others like Bridget of Sweden, highly celebrated. Now, I think her husband might not have been the most robust shape, but her confessors play it up to make it sound like a huge kind of sacrifice. And even if they didn't have spiritual marriages, a lot of them were matrons who really struggled with marriage and the marriage debt, Angela Foligno or someone like that, or the lesser known Dorothea of Montau. Now, Dorothea of Montau and Bridget of Sweden were both inspiration for the feckless Marjorie Kemp, and they both had struggled to earn that degree of chastity. You know, and I think that very struggle leads to what I call a kind of doubleness that facilitates a kind of mystical experience, because there's this tension between the outer and the inner, and that somehow seems to feed the inner. So Elzir and Delphine were another one of these spiritual marriages. Yes, that's right. So how did you find them? Because some of these people were very obscure. Elzear and Dauphine weren't. Oh, really? So what do we know about them? As members of the nobility, they certainly left a trail. I mean, Elzear served the King of Naples, and Dauphine was a lady-in-waiting to Queen Sancha for a while. But to my knowledge, they didn't write anything about their actual spiritual practice, apart from I think that Elzear may have written a kind of rule of life that he wanted his courtiers to follow, or at least put forward one that had, that foregrounded chastity in a very big way. But they were religious celebrities, because very soon after Elzear's death, he was the subject of a successful process of canonization. Now, there's an epitome that remains, but the full process is no longer extant as far as I know. There is, however, also a Provencal life, and the Latin one that appears in Actus Sanctorum, I think, is based on the Provencal life. 
So probably the Provencal life and there's an epitome that just sort of summarizes what his articles for canonization would have been. Can you give us a quick rundown of what the process of canonization was like? Okay, process of canonization, because these are the main sources for Elzey and Dauphine, is first of all, you have to get a vita, a life together. And then, well, you have to have a lot of money to do it because it has to be done at Rome, centralized through the papacy. But anyways, then extracted from the Vita usually are these articles that you will get different witnesses to testify to. And then you send the whole thing down to Rome with a proctor who's got to be there to sort of guide the process through. And for whatever reason, Elzear's was successful, but the whole thing I don't think does survive. So we're mostly dependent on the Vitae. But his wife, she lived longer than him. I think she died in 1360. And she had a, an extensive process of canonization, which failed for complicated reasons. But I should probably tell you more of, about their lives and their spiritual practices before I should tell you why it failed. But anyway, so we have those kinds of sources. Um, we know that Elzear from the lives had mystical experiences, but we don't really know very much about the content of the actual mystical experiences. I should point out here that one of the things that I find fascinating about this is that in the spiritual marriages I discovered, and also, you know, if you look at sort of Bynum's list of who gets what spiritually, it's usually women who are going to be the mystics, but in this case, it's the husband. But his mystical vocation is very much driven by the kind of lifestyle that's set down by his wife. Okay, well, my interest is thoroughly piqued. Please tell me more about this couple. Okay, so Elzear and Dauphine have been, I think, justifiably called by André Vaucher, like something out of the Golden Legend, you know, which is this hugely popular 13th century collection of saints' lives. And um, they really are very hagiographic and with spiritual marriage. They often do follow hagiographic models. So both of them are Provencal saints in the south of France. Dauphine was the sole heir to the vast estates. And already when she was seven or eight, she had a vocation to chastity, which is very typical for women with that kind of a vocation. I mean, there's some, been some speculation that she had a kind of louche father and there were two illegitimate kids running around. But Weinstein and Bell and their Saints in Society pointed out that girl children usually have a vocation to chastity by the time they're seven, age of reason. And I think there's good reason for this. Even in a castle, you can tell if someone's screaming their head off in pain from childbirth, right? And I have, I think that most intelligent girl children around five or six would think, oh, that's not for me. And um, so she certainly falls into that paradigm. And then because she was a member of the higher nobility, at the behest of the king of Naples, engaged to Elzear. And of course, she was very reluctant. And he was 12 at the time of their betrothal. And she was 14. So she was two years senior, which, by the way, I think is significant. And then the marriage was rushed up. And, you know, they did exchange vows in the presence of the king. And apparently she craftily asked, can I go back on this? I mean, is this, you know, is this irrevocable? And he had to make things easier. He said, oh, yeah, sure. But anyways, then she found herself with this 14-year-old guy who was obviously curious about sex and eager to get on with it. And she's supposed to be very beautiful. And she did exactly what St. Cecilia had done and told him about the great rewards and whatever virginity. And 
Elzear Rose eventually fell asleep because she kept telling him all these saints lives. It was sort of like the Shaharazad. And then the next night she told him more saints lives and he fell asleep, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually, you know, he is going to start to pressure her over the next two years. But then he is going to have a revelation, which is sort of inaugurates his mystical life. And he will lose all interest in sex by the time he's 16. And it's still, because of pressure from the family, I think it takes him another 14 years before he'll make a formal vow of chastity. But he eventually does do it. In the meantime, the couple are really put through the mill. They were living in his paternal grandfather's house. And, you know, okay, it's been four years. Why aren't you pregnant? And they um, would give them potions. She kept throwing them out. And then they sent them to Arnold of Villanova, who's a very famous Catalan doctor who was in Marseille, to check her out. And fortunately, he was a ardent yokemist and believed that chastity and you know was very important because the end of the world was right around the corner. And so he gave a bogus diagnosis of the various things that might have been causing a temporary slowdown. And, and apparently the grandfather, crafty guy, even hid lewd women in their bedroom to try and incite them to sex. I always, my, my <laughs> view is that these things would probably be counterproductive. But anyways. I was going to say, how shocking that they managed not to succumb to such seductions. But obviously they managed. They held on. And when Alziar eventually came of age, they got to go live on Dauphine's estates and in their lives then they were able to um, create the kind of lifestyle they wanted and gathered a chaste group of courtiers around them. I've seen Elzir and Delphine discussed in the same frame as the Franciscans of the same period. Were there connections between this couple and the Franciscan order? Okay, so this is a very fraught time for the Franciscan order. I mean, it's right around the turn of the 13th to 14th century. They were married in the year 1300 when there was a real crisis in the south of France with the spiritual Franciscans. And the spiritual Franciscans were completely committed to absolute poverty. And a few years later, I guess 1311, the Council of Vienne, they were actually going to be condemned. And there was a lot of apocalyptic associations with the spiritual Franciscans. Well, there had been this very charismatic Franciscan named Peter John Olivi, who had written a number of things that have been translated in the vernacular. He, of course, was fanatical for chastity. It's speculated that they were certainly in the circle of this kind of spiritual Franciscan ambiance. It's unclear how much of Olivier they may or may not have read, but he was certainly in the air, you know. So then I think it's significant that once Elzear died, Dauphine's next job, she'd found, in addition to virginity, this vocation to absolute poverty and humility. She spent the rest of her life trying to divest herself of her vast properties. How do I get rid of all this money? I mean, if you're really religious, that's a, a huge burden. And not having an heir, that probably further complicated matters. You can't just be like, here, it's all yours now. Goodbye. Right, I know. I don't know who the immediate heir would have been for Delphine. She was already female who had inherited. And I guess there couldn't have been a very pressing claim for some heir or they probably would have stopped her. I mean, I think that she was her own mistress at that point. It makes you wonder also about the role of Elzear because she obviously did, to some extent, submit to the rule of the husband or she would have started the divestment while he was still alive. Oh, that's interesting. So Delphine got him to commit to chastity, but he was not as committed to the concept of poverty. 
And, you know, I think, though, that his spirituality, we don't know very much about the content of his visions, but I think that it might have been some sort of spiritualized chivalric ethos. Olaby had actually written a treatise on the armed knight, which talks about the cuirass of chastity, etc., and significantly, he had his first mystical experience when he was attending the making of a knight and finally agreed to his vow of chastity with Dauphine on the vigil of his own knighthood. And then there was apparently a dream that it ends up in his promised life, but it probably would have been reported as process for canonization, that a noblewoman saw a knight with a beautiful white banner on a field, and there were all sorts of people following him. And it was revealed to her that that was Elzear, and he had persuaded all of these people to great living and virginal lifestyle. You know, So he might have had an elaborate chivalric, and he was very intent on organizing his household in a chaste and in a good way. And he didn't have, as far as I know, a confessor to sort of write down all his visions. He had his wife. She was his closest confidant. So what he is remembered for is certainly his contemplative life, but also the fact that he was a good noble person, right? You know, not exploitive, not greedy, not... and. It did help that the Pope at the time, I think it was John the Twenty Second, was his godfather. <laughs> so, so, you know, so his um, his process sped through. So the that, nepotism, the nepotism and canonization. Nepotism, exactly. <laughs> well, suddenly his canonization is making total sense. But what about Dauphine's? So with Dauphine, hers probably didn't turn out well. Because, well, she wasn't a mystic, and the main planks for her case for sanctity was her ferocious commitment to chastity and apostolic poverty. Well, chastity is always supposed to be a good thing. You would think it would be easier for a woman who remained a virgin through a marriage, etc., etc. I mean, that seems like a formula for success that would work with other people, and other royal people, too. I mean, um, one of the first Married women who was actually formally canonized was Cunegonde, who was a German empress who was married to Henry II. And the spiritual marriage was perfect because it helped explain an awkward end of dynasty. So there were, you know, noble people who had, had spiritual marriages. But her devotion to chastity bordered on the fanatic. And people at her process of canonization said once when a knight was apologizing for her for I'm sorry I remarried. I know I shouldn't have, but, you know, I'm weak. And she says, well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be a mother even if I had one of the apostles as a child. And <laughs> comments like that are just sort of a little over the top. I mean, you can imagine people in Rome thinking, ooh, fanatical commitment to chastity. Apostolic poverty looks way too spiritual Franciscan for my taste. It's a bad historical moment to be fanatical about poverty. Yeah, I know. I know. And also, you know, because of the eschatological writings inspired by Joachim Fiora, but Peter John Olavi and Arnold of Villanova, too, they both had spiritual stuff about the importance of chastity from an eschatological standpoint and in these perilous times with the end of the world. So all of these things would have rung perhaps danger bells. And also, then they fell into the papal schism. It's not a good time to be canonized anyways. I mean, look at someone like Bridget of Sweden. She had to be recanonized over and over. 
So there are a lot of factors going on in the period that also made it more difficult for Dauphine to be recognized in the way that she probably should have been. But going back to Elzir, we're told that he had revelations, but we're not told what they were, we're not given any content. Does that surprise you, given that we have hagiographical works, he was canonized, that we just don't know anything about these experiences? No, because I think that sometimes it depends on who is listening. You know, like Conrad of Marburg, the evil, the evil confessor of Elizabeth of Hungary. It's clear that she had mystical experiences, but he wasn't interested in writing them down. Conrad was trying to emphasize her commitment to poverty. Again, if you're a princess, that's a remarkable thing, right? And her obedience to him. And those were his main things. And so we don't really know what would be the content of Elizabeth's revelations and stuff. And with Bridget of Sweden, her life is told in such a way that it makes it sound as if chastity was the thing that allowed her to become a prophet, like after the death of Ulf, her first formal um, revelations. But if you look around in the different Vedas and stuff, there's one, one line that says, even before she became a widow, she saw certain things. But they don't say what. I mean, obviously, she was more credible as a widow than somebody, you know, was in a weird kind of murky spiritual marriage with her husband or whatever, and certainly than a matron who was churning out children. So I think that people pick and choose. And because, to a certain extent, their chastity was known to the circle um, in the house, etc., I'm assuming well known to the confessor, the person that he told his revelations to, and I have, I have one salient piece of evidence for this is Dauphine. One really intimate thing that's told in his Provencal life is once when they were in the bedroom and she was washing his hair, he said to her, oh, leave me now. I am about to go into a rapture. And then she went away. And then when she came back into the room the next morning, she gave him a little bit of space. His face was shining like it was full of candles. And he told her everything he'd seen. They don't tell us. I mean, that kind of spiritual intimacy is not written down, which I think is intriguing and um, also in a way very beautiful. This was for them. That is so interesting, because with mystics, we often find that they're given almost a mission to communicate what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're learning from God, that the communication of these revelations is an essential part of the reason that they're receiving them, but not in his case. Whatever he saw, it was just for him and his wife. That's right. That's right. And you look at some of these women, they've got confessors at their elbows ready to write down whatever. And these were people who he might have been a contemplative, but he was still engaged in the active life. You know, he died on a diplomatic mission. Of course, Dauphine started to cry and knew the moment that he died. They had this like very heady kind of intimacy that way. But turned out she was right. And, but anyway, so we don't know the content, but we do know that it was his spiritual profile and the way he lived his life and the fact that he did become a contemplative was completely shaped by his marriage to Dauphine. I feel like she should get a canonization because she made someone a saint. Well, you know, what's interesting is even before he was canonized, she started venerating him privately. She knew she'd made him into a saint. And actually, she didn't do very well after he died initially until he appeared to her in a vision. So I guess you could say that she was a little bit of a mystic and told her to pull herself together, you know, that he was released from the flesh and that was a good thing. There's something so sweet about that. 
I know. It is sweet. I mean, it is like really just, it is really like something out of the Golden Legend. Only better. Well, now we have reached the end of the podcast, which means there is just one question left, which is, why did you choose Elzir and Delphine as your favorite mystical married couple? They're my favorite mystics because in my experience, <laughs> not just with working on spiritual marriage, but mystics generally, they have terrible marriages. And the very idea that a couple, St. Augustine had wrote this to a woman who acted like her husband was dead after they took a vow of chastity. So that was the context for it. That he did say to her that the bond was stronger, the chaster than marriage was. Now he was doing that to get her to submit to the husband. But actually, this is an actual instance where the Augustinian formula works. Their bond was stronger, the chaster they were. And I think that they really loved each other. They would go to bed together every night, fully clothed, lie on the bed, hand in hand. I mean, they had to do that initially for the first seven years or so because they didn't want his relatives to figure out why she wasn't getting pregnant. And what happens between men and women when they're not producing children? A different kind of intimacy, right? A different way of running your household. I mean, I think it's very significant, for example, that it was allegedly Dauphine who taught Elzair how to read, but their spiritualities became so intertwined with one another and so wound up. And there was an instance where, you know, very Augustinian, she was distraught because I think the Duke of Calabria not only didn't mourn the death of his wife, but was looking forward to marrying someone else. And she was completely thrown by this. And she told him in tears. And he said, with others, when the relationship is based on the flesh, the flesh fails and that relationship will fail. But ours, which is based on the spirit, will endure forever. And by ever, he meant into heaven. And marriage was considered to be dissolved. You know, in heaven, there's no marriage or giving in marriage. He was projecting their union into the afterlife. And I think that's pretty amazing. That is so romantic. Yeah, I love them because they're so romantic. I think that a lot of men might think that that's a bizarre view of romance. And, you know, let's face it, Provencal, it is the area of courtly love. Some people have speculated that maybe there was some of that ethos there, if you believe that the original courtly love was sort of an unconsummated kind. I don't think that that's necessarily so. But I think that it was a very heady kind of ambiance living in the south of France at that time with the spiritual Franciscans and stuff. I mean, it must have been, and it seems like they had just a really wonderful relationship. Diane, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me about Elzir and Delphine. Nice talking to you and good luck with your own work, okay? Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Travis Stevens about Beatrice of Nazareth.